Good morning. morning. We're glad you're here today. We hope you've had a great weekend so far. And glad, as always, as God's people, we can come together to worship God, to encourage each other in faith, to start a new week together. For those of you that are visiting, thank you for being here. Uh, We hope that our worship has already been meaningful and encouraging. And we hope we get a chance to meet you before you leave today. We always like our visitors to know our goal here is to simply be Christians. We put Church of Christ on the sign because we want to be undenominational followers of Jesus Christ. And and we encourage everybody we know to to follow that same idea of let's just follow Jesus. Let's just try to follow the Bible. And if we can be an encouragement to your faith or support to your faith in any way, please let us know. Really glad you're here today. Hope our lesson will be encouraging. We're going to start with a prayer and then we'll jump into our lesson. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for another Sunday that your people can gather around the world to worship you. I pray, God, that our hearts have been with you in worship already, and I pray that our lesson um, will be worshipful and encouraging as well. God, we're thankful for all the good things you do in our life. Please give us thankful hearts. Please give us humble hearts. And God, as we study your word today, I pray that uh, we'll hear something in it that will remind us of your goodness and reaffirm our trust and faith in you. I pray, God, that all that is said will be what you want to be said. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you think about this question on the screen? What makes a church successful? If there's, and there's probably been several good things that have come out of the difficulties of the last few years. I hope there's some more good things that we'll, we'll discover in ourselves as time moves forward. But I think one of the things I've heard some churches re-asking themselves is this type of question. At a time when, when attendance has fluctuated because of concern about health, at a time when, uh, when things have been difficult and, and haven't always had the consistency and stability that churches have wanted, some are starting to re-ask themselves this question. What, what makes a church successful? You notice I put successful in quotes, maybe implying that there's, there's some measures we're tempted to use that don't seem to really fit success. In fact, they sometimes sound a lot more like American business-style success than they do churches. Do we measure a church's success by how many people are there? Now, it's, it's encouraging when there's more people. It's encouraging to have more people together worshiping. It's encouraging to, to feel like we're all on the same team as a bigger group of people going out into the world. But I don't think any of us would say that's... That's the standard of success. I hope we wouldn't. That's the goal to pursue at all costs. Is growth the measure of success? Growth is exciting. It's exciting to feel like people want to be part of, of what you're doing and are coming alongside you in that. And, and in fact, in the book of Acts, they, they celebrate how, how many Christians and how much the church was growing. But, but is, is the book of Acts saying that growth is the highest value and we put that above everything else? Would you put a church budget or a church facilities or, or a church reputation? What, what makes you successful? What, what really defines, are we doing what we should be doing or not? Sometimes that can be difficult in a church context. As we've talked about the last few weeks, this is a big year for our congregation, our church family. This August, we're going to celebrate 30 years of the Great Oaks Church of Christ in this community trying to serve God. And it gives us a chance, I think, I hope, to remind ourselves, what's it all about? What are we aiming for? What we, we feel like 30 years is worth celebrating. Okay, what's our, what's our scorecard? 
Well, what do we look at and say, here's, here's why we, we think it's worth celebrating. Here's why we think there's something successful to talk about or not. What, what's, a, what's a scorecard that the church should have? So here's what I'd like us to do this morning and the next two Sundays. I'd like us to talk about, the way I've heard it framed before, the three directions of the church. And what, what I think this, I hope, will get across is that in Scripture, there are at least three major things. That the church, and I think you could fit all of them. There are three major directions the church should be functioning in. The first one we'll talk about today is the biggest one. The other two will grow out of this morning. But it helps us, I hope, crystallize in our minds, here's what we're all about, or what we should be all about. So here's what I want us to do. If you have your Bible, open to the book of Ephesians. I will have the verses on the screen, but you may want to have the context in front of you because I'll put them up there, and then I'll go to a thought, and then I'll put another verse up there and go to the thought. We're going to spend our time in Ephesians. And we'll walk through and just see, what does Ephesians say about the church? And then we're going to ask just how important that is. So we're going to notice this morning the first big direction of the church in the book of Ephesians. And then we're going to ask maybe some difficult questions at the end about how important that is. This is something, let me just say it at the outset. To me, this is one of the things you almost feel like you shouldn't have to say. That's what this lesson feels like to me. It's the type of thing that's so foundational that, that you almost wish you didn't have to say it. But I think experience tells us we have to talk about these things. And I think that statement will make sense to you as we go through this morning. So let's talk about Ephesians. I have five passages we'll look at. We're going to look at what they say about the church. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, but it's a letter that fits for, for any church in any time and any place. He's writing about how great salvation is in Jesus Christ, and he says a lot about the church. In fact, some people put the whole theme of Ephesians under the, the theme of the church. Whether you would do that or not, it does say a lot of things about the church. So I've got five verses. There could be others. Uh, there are others. And I just want us to ask, what does it say about what the church should be? Verse number one, Ephesians chapter one, verses 22 and 23. If you want to open there with us, we're just going to move from beginning toward the end in the book of Ephesians. It says, He put all things in subjection under His feet. You notice the capital H on His. We're talking about Jesus here. God put all things in subjection under Jesus and gave Him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What do you see there about the church? I've got at least two things. First of all, Jesus is the head. It's His church. We never want to forget that. He said in Matthew 16, On this rock I will build my church. He built it. It belongs to Him. He's, he's in charge of it. And so if I'm asking myself, what, a, what does the church need to be from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23? I need to say, okay, am I doing what Jesus wants me to do? Am I following what He teaches, what He says we should do? The second thing I see in there, maybe others, but the second thing I see in verse 23 is that not only is he the head, we are his body. What an interesting analogy. That just as Jesus' physical body came to earth for a time and taught about God and served God and did things for God, we are now the physical body of Jesus in this world. And it is our job to teach what Jesus would teach and to do what Jesus would do, and, and to practice all the things that Jesus wanted His people to practice. So from Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, we already see it's His church, 
And we're supposed to be doing what He wants us to do. Second passage, Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. Another passage about the church here in Ephesians. Starting verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. People, you're no longer people who are outside God's people. But you are now fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. What an interesting description of the church. God's household. Having been built on the foundation. What's the foundation? Of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Before I read further, notice that. There's a foundation that the church is laid on. And it is, what, what do the apostles and prophets do? They taught God's word, didn't they? they? They gave what God wanted to be said. God spoke through them. So that's the foundation. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The cornerstone was what you would set up at the corner. It had to be the perfect stone so you could line up everything up perfectly. Jesus is at the cornerstone. Everything else is lined up alongside it. If it's not lining up with what Jesus wants, if it's not built on top of what God has said, that's not a church God wants. It's not, it's not doing what God wants it to do. The church is not what God wants it to be. Verse 21, it goes further. He says, In whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. But we as the church are a dwelling of God. God lives in His people, and we're supposed to be a holy temple. Holy meaning more like God. What do we get out of that passage? Well, I think we see the church is built on God's Word. If I'm not teaching, if we are not teaching as a church what God wants to be taught, if we are not practicing what God has said to practice, we're not on the right foundation. It goes on to say, now what I've summarized, verses 21 22, we're supposed to be holy for God. In other words, we're supposed to be encouraging each other, teaching each other to live the way God wants us to live. Remember 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul gets upset at the church in Corinth because somebody in the congregation was just living in open sin and they weren't doing anything about it. And Paul says, no, wait a second, that's not what the church is. We don't just pat each other on the back and say, do whatever you want to do in life. We're trying to encourage each other to live for Jesus Christ. It's His church. His Word is the foundation. We are trying to encourage the right things, the godly things. Even when culture disagrees, we try to teach what God has said is the right thing. Passage number 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. I think you're noticing a theme already, but look at verses 10 and 11. It says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So verse 11 tells us this was God's eternal plan for this time in history. For the church to be doing what in verse 10? making the wisdom of God known to the world. That, that's what the church is supposed to be doing. Teaching God's wisdom to the world. Not just teaching our own ideas, our own opinions, our own thoughts, but, but what does God say is truth? And try to teach that to each other. Challenge each other to live it. Try to teach it to the world. Let the world know what it says. We don't let the world tell us what's right and wrong. Every now and then you learn things. All truth is God's truth, I've always heard people say. And I think that's a, a true statement. When you find truth in the world, you learn from it. But God's truth has spoken, 
And we don't let the world tell us what we need to change from Scripture. We, we speak God's wisdom to the world. We trust God knows what He's talking about. The all-wise, all-knowing, almighty God. Passage number four. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. He says, this is some people's favorite description of God in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's a, that's a great description, isn't it? God is able to do far more than all we ask or think. He, he's, he's powerful enough according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want to take off verse 21. The church should be for God's glory. Did you notice that? Let me put it back up here. To Him be the glory in the church. The church is supposed to be glorifying God. We don't glorify ourselves. but We don't promote ourselves. We don't say, hey, hey, look at, look at us. Look how great we are. Look how we've got it all together. Look at all the amazing things we're doing. That, that's not the goal. That's not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is to point to God, to point to Jesus Christ for His glory. What, what, is, what does He want? What honor does He deserve? How, do, how does He want to be worshipped? So on and so forth. Number five, the last one I've got, and there's others, but these are the, the five I've got this morning about the church in Ephesians. Chapter four, verses three through six is what I'm going to read, but I wrote two through six up there. Verse three says, we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he's talking about the unity of God's people that we should preserve that and work for that. And then look how he describes God's people. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You notice in those seven ones that are listed, Three of them are what sometimes called the Trinity, or the Godhead. You have one Spirit there in verse 4. You have one Lord, seems to be talking about Jesus in verse 5. One God and Father in verse 6. So you have our, our unique connection to God. And then the other four things God has taught His people to be and to do. There's one body. We have one hope that we're looking toward in eternity. There's one faith that's been taught that we need to continue. There's one baptism we've all participated in that makes us part of that body. What I see here is the church's unity is based on its unique relationship with God and with God's teaching. That There's this oneness that unites us, Father, Son, Spirit. We teach the faith that Jude 3 says was once for all handed down to the saints. We've all participated in the one baptism that puts us into Christ. We have, we have one hope that we're looking toward in eternity. We are one body of people who are trying to follow God. There's this unique connection to God. I hope the point is clear, but if it's not, the first major direction, the foundational one, the one that matters above all else for a church to be successful, are we looking upward the right way? Are we asking, God, what do you want? And are we who you want us to be? That's where the standard of success lies. Not in, not in what the world thinks, not in what I think. What does God think? In fact, let's ask some hard questions about that. Well, we could have kept going in Ephesians. 
Ephesians 4 goes on to talk about how we all have different gifts and how we all contribute to helping all of us live more like Jesus Christ in the church. Again, trying to be more like Christ. Ephesians 5 talks about how the church is like the husband-wife relationship. And so we love God, and so everything we're trying to to serve God and, and lift God up the way husband and wife do in a marriage, lift each other up. There's more that could be said, but they're all pointed in the same direction. The church is supposed to be glorifying God. What about when we lose that as the number one goal of the church? Let me ask a hard question. Is it possible, just asking biblically, is it possible to call ourselves a church and God not be happy with us? Is it possible that for me to think, boy, we're, we're doing great stuff, and everybody else thinks we're doing great stuff, and look at our reputation, and look at our numbers, and look, look at our growth. Is it possible for all those little things to be going on and God say, you're, just, you're not who I want you to be? Let's write a couple verses down. Here in Revelation 2 and 3, you have Jesus speaking through the Apostle John to seven different churches. I'd encourage you to read through all of it this afternoon. I've just got two little snippets up here this morning. He goes through seven churches and gives his, here's what I think. And in all of them, he says, here's something I'm proud of, that you're doing good. And in almost all of them, there's, there's one or two you'll find that, that are only complimentary, that, that, are, that he's happy with. But in almost all of them, he says, here's some things I'm concerned about that you need to keep your eye on. And here in this first one, as he's talking to the church at Ephesus in verse 1, he says, I have this against you, verse 4. You've left your first love. You don't love me the way... I'm not your highest priority anymore, the way I used to be. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, if you just read that verse and had no clue about Revelation, you might wonder, what's he talking about? He's going to sneak in and steal their lamp? and then That's not what he's saying. He's not going to take the lights out of the building. What, he's, what it means is, in chapter 1, there were these lampstands that were symbolic for the churches, and Jesus was walking among them. And so he's saying, if you don't go back to putting me at the, at the top of that list of what you're trying to do as a church... You're not going to be one of my churches anymore. I'm going to take away that lampstand. It's possible. Now, they still would have been calling themselves a church. They still would have been meeting, I presume, on Sundays and, and talking about God, doing other things. But, but Jesus was saying, you got to be careful because I'm not where I need to be on the priority list anymore. About a little bit later, just one more of these in Revelation 2 and 3. He's writing to the church at Sardis. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. You have a great reputation, Jesus says. I know that. I know that. People thought they were great. If, 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 they'd, if they'd been around today, everybody would have loved their social media stuff. Their Facebook likes would have been off the charts. Everybody would have been, man, look at how amazing that church is there in Sardis. They are doing really cool stuff. He says, I know you're dead, though, so you need to wake up spiritually. You need to wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die because I haven't found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard. Remember what you were taught, what I wanted the church to be. Go back to that and keep it 
and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Some form of judgment on this church. I don't know what it was going to be. He just uses the symbolism of coming like a thief. Again, it just shows me it's possible to call yourself a church and maybe even have a great reputation. And Jesus to look and say, you're not doing what I want you to be doing. You're doing a lot of stuff, but it's not, it's not about me. It's about something else. What about Matthew 7, 21 through 23? This one's more on the individual level, but if it can be done in a person, it can be done in a church. It says here in verse 21, Jesus talking near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There's so many things that challenge us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of them to me. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who calls me Lord is going gonna, is gonna to be there. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. It's not just calling Jesus Lord. It's doing what Jesus wants us to do. It's making it about what he wants, not what I want, not what the world wants. And it goes on and says, Jesus says, Many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus, look at all we did. People thought we were great. We did this, and we did this for you. We did this for you. And Jesus said, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about obeying me. That's a really challenging thought, that sometimes it can all get mixed up. We're calling Jesus Lord, and we're doing things ostensibly in his name, but it's really not about him. One more passage on this one. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. One of our summer series speakers pointed this out a few years ago. And uh, I think he's right. I think he's right. This is interesting. He's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's starting the section on the Lord's Supper, which you might remember the Corinthian church was really taking the Lord's Supper, making it not what God wanted it to be. So their worship is messed up here. And he says, In giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. It's possible for a church to be coming together and making themselves spiritually worse. How's that, how's that possible? I mean, you're, you're, you're coming together as a church. Maybe. Maybe if your focus of coming together is, is about yourself, you're making yourself more spiritually selfish and not more humble before God. Maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe if your worship is about just what everybody wants it to be, maybe you're making yourself more of a people-pleasing person spiritually and not about God. It's possible for a church to come together and make themselves worse. One of the things, it just makes me wonder. I'm thankful I'm not the judge of these things. I'm thankful that God has the wisdom and the knowledge to look into all our mixed motives and what we're trying to do and who we're trying to be and all those sorts of things. I'm thankful that He can do all But it just makes me wonder. How many churches does the world celebrate? But God looks at and says, you're not really trying to serve me. Sometimes the world celebrates things God doesn't, right? I think about Herod in Acts chapter 12. He's given a speech and the people start saying, the voice of a God, not of a man. And, and Acts 12 says Herod just kept all the glory for himself. And God struck him, if you remember. Herod would die from the sickness he was struggling. The world's cheering. Everybody's celebrating. God's not happy. God knew the heart. God knew what was really happening. 
Sometimes it's the opposite. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, he, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're so angry at him. Remember, they're gnashing their teeth together, is that description in Acts 7. And they take him out and they stone him. And as Stephen is being killed, literally killed by the people throwing stones at him, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Sometimes the world boos and hates. God is, Jesus is standing in honor because he sees you're, you're standing up for me. You're making about me more than you are anything else. Sometimes it's all backwards from what it looks like. And it's tough to keep the perspective What's it really all about? It's supposed to be all about God. This is the most important question I hope we always ask as a church. What does God want? The first question is not, what do I want? The first question is not, what does the culture want? The first question is not, what will give us some popularity or some attention or more people? Or The first question is always, if we want to be on an honor to God, the first question is always, what does he want? And here's the thing that I think sometimes people forget. That's, that's not only the best question, that's the best way to do things. You know, people, I think part of the reason sometimes people get things twisted is, is it starts with a genuine desire to want to make a difference. I want to make a difference. I want more people to come to God. And, and so we just start looking for all these other things. And, and we start thinking subconsciously, if we're not careful, if God would just let me change a few things, I could really make this good. I was reading a, an interview by a guy several years back, and he had been studying the issue of hell in the Bible. And we'll dig into that and wrestle with that, I hope, in, in later this year, in a few months. But, but he was wrestling with that. And as he reads all that the Bible says about punishment and, and God knowing more than we do and all those sorts of things, he said... Very honest, he said, I had to repent as a preacher. He said, because I think I had subconsciously thought in my mind, he said, I would talk about hell, but I would try to, I would try to just sort of hide it in the corner. He said, he said I sort of felt like, um, subconsciously, if God would just let me say this a little nicer than he did, then more people would come to God. He said, I had to repent of that. He said, God knows what he's doing. He doesn't, mean, doesn't need me to change it. Doesn't, mean, doesn't need me to hide certain parts of it or, or elevate certain parts of it. Doing it God's way is the... God knows how to build faith. God knows how to bring hearts to Him. God knows the beauty of the gospel if we will just hold it up and live it out. God knows how to bring people to the salvation that comes in Christ. And if we're doing it His way, He's the one that gives the growth. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 7. He, he's the one that blesses. We, we, we plant and we water, as Paul says here, but God's the one who gives the growth. He's the one we're reminded in Psalm 127, unless God builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. We never want to build houses, build churches, build doctrines on our own thoughts and opinions. We want, we want God to be the one behind it. It's always the most important question to ask, and I hope it'll always be us at Great Oaks. I hope it's who we are. I hope it'll always be our number one thing. May we always be a church that seeks to glorify God above all else. The most important direction the church functions in is upwards. We look up, God, what do you want? We don't look out, <laughs> what do they want? We don't look in, what do I want? God, what do you want? That simple, foundational, so simple we probably shouldn't have to say it out loud thing is, is worth reminding, I think. Reminding ourselves, let's not lose focus. In the midst of all the things we're trying to do, it's supposed to be about Jesus Christ. Let's always lift up God in everything that we do. If you're not a Christian this morning, 
We're about to sing a song of invitation. And during this song, if anyone wants to take a public step of faith, we give you that opportunity. If you're thinking about becoming a Christian, we'd encourage you to do it. Most important decision of your life. Put your life into God. Put your life into the forgiveness and the strength that He offers. Here's what I think you'll find the Bible says, the New Testament says, about how that happens. People ask, how do I do it? What do I actually do? Once you hear about Jesus Christ, you believe in Him. You make this commitment of repentance. doesn't mean you get perfect first and then you become a Christian. But you make this commitment that you want to live for Him. And then you confess, you believe Jesus is the Son of God, and you're baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Rise up to walk a new life. We would love to talk with you about that if you're interested in becoming a Christian, publicly or privately. Or if we can pray for you about anything going on in your life, we would sure love to do that. The song we're about to sing comes from Jeremiah chapter 8. And the question Jeremiah is asking is, he's saying, is, is it that God can't save? Is that why you haven't come to God? Because there's there's no way to be saved. And he's referring to this, this medicine that was famous in a place called Gilead, this balm that you could put on things that were wounded and it would be healed. And so he asked the question, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no way to be, to be healed? And the rhetorical answer is, of course, of course there is. God is ready. God is always ready to heal and to help if we're ready to come to him. And if you need to take a step, take a step publicly this morning, we'd sure love to help you in any way we can. You're invited to come to the front now if you'd like to, while we stand, while we sing.